Sarah? Yes, Josh? Are we ready? I think so. Great. Before we begin, we here at the Puppet Pod would like to acknowledge and honor that this land where we are situated is on a portion of the Aboriginal territory of the Seneca people, and by extension, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. We pay respect to Seneca peoples, past, present, and future, and offer our care and gratitude to the land, water, and air. For more information, please visit the Seneca Art and Culture Center at Ganondagan in Victor, New York. That's G-A-N-O-N-D-A-G-A-N. Or online at www.ganondagan.org. Thank Thank you. you. My name is Dan Herlin, and I think puppetry should be outlawed. Puppetry is hard because you have to make everything. I mean, if you need a telephone, you can't go to the store and buy a one-half-scale telephone. You actually have to make it. Puppetry is hard. Puppetry is hard. Hello and welcome, puppet fans, fellow puppet people, even puppets. If you're also listening, you're welcome to uh, welcome to the Puppet Pod. My name is Josh Rice, and as always, I am with my trusty sidekick. The um, what 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 would I what can I say for you today, Sarah? Uh, could I say you are the the Tigger to my Winnie the Pooh? Sure, or, sure, um, definitely the, the the Bert to my Ernie. Ooh, that's a good one. I like that. Um, the the monster to my cookie. Ooh, okay. All right. I'm there. I'm liking the puppet references. You're kind to me. Uh, anyway, uh, Sarah Stabley. Sarah, it's so nice to see you again. It's nice to see you too on this lovely rainy and sunny day. Can't decide which. I know. Uh, the joys of Western New York weather. Sarah, I don't know that we should waste any time with, with us talking or, or bloviating, as one might say, ah. um, because we have a huge guest today, a guest that uh, has been referenced by every other guest so far in the pod. Um, you've met our guest. He's an incredible artist, theater artist, and maybe the papa puppet that a lot of us have referred to. He is an incredible teacher and uh, just a, a nice human being and one of my heroes and certainly the person that introduced me to this entire world of contemporary puppetry for adults and so many countless other artists uh, would say the same. So proud and happy to welcome to the Puppet Pod. Mr. Dan Herlin. Dan, oh my God, how are you, my friend? <laughs> I'm a little nonplussed by that intro, but I'm fine. <laughs> so Dan, you are, uh, you have kind of just finished up at Sarah Lawrence College, and what a strange way to finish your final semester there. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Well, it's sort of like I didn't go out with a bang, I just kind of evaporated, you know? <laughs> We had, I mean, that's really what it felt like because the whole last part of the semester was all online. Yeah. So, you know, I, I was not in the room with people, uh, with students. And, you know, I had been running the grad program for 10 years and, and that required some quite a bit of administration. And the whole reason I liked teaching was because I liked being in the room with the students. I liked, mm-hmm. get, you know, sort of I fed off of their creativity and it's just so much harder to do that online. It was rough. Everybody, you know, in the lockdown, they're 
you know, their drive seems to dissipate. And this regular class that we had where I would give them a prompt and they would have to make stuff would at least keep their creative muscles going. So we did the first prompt and they showed their work and I was like, ugh, I can't do this anymore. Let's cancel class. (laughs) I felt kind of bad about it, but I just could not. I had been, it was my like third meeting or class of the day and I was just, check please. Yeah, it's such a strange, weird transition for for all the teachers out there. And I know I I had to do some of those same types of um, trials with with my students too. And that's just such a difficult thing to do. And especially in a three-hour class and try to find some way to engage people. I mean, it's just the the stamina it takes to teach online, I feel like, is even more than in real life. Oh, my God. I I can't tell you how much more alcohol I consumed those weeks that I was teaching online. (laughs) It's just like, oh, give me a drink. Well, uh, I have to say, Dan, one of the things that I know that you like to drink is Corona. And uh, I'm curious if that's been something you've been able to find during the, the quarantine. Yeah, it, it is. And interestingly, do you, you know that they've discontinued it? I, I, they have altogether? Yeah, I mean, it's still oh available. I guess, you know, they, you know, they still, all of the stores are still carrying and the, the distributors are still carrying it, but they're, they're not manufacturing it anymore. And the reason that they're not manufacturing it anymore is because when the coronavirus first came out, too many stupid Americans made the equation that it was related to Corona beer and their sales plummeted. That is the most absurd thing. Uh, oh my God. My fondness for Corona beer seems to be legend because I have all of these former students who like send me Corona themed gifts. <laughs> and now I'm like, what the hell am I going to do with them? You know, I've got like the, those yellow Crocs that I always walk around in. They're, they're, oh yeah. They're, they've got the Corona label on them. <laughs> Nothing like sporting your beverage of choice on your feet. Oh, yeah, right. I know. <laughs> and, and by the way, you know, word of caution, don't, don't ever invest in yellow Crocs because they get dirty really fast and they can't, you can't clean them. Word of wisdom from Dan Herlin. I appreciate that, Dan. <laughs> and my work here is done. And that's End right. of podcast. End scene. Podcast <laughs> over. Well, Dan, it's been a really, I imagine, cool journey to be an undergraduate at Sarah Lawrence and kind of come back and then join the faculty and recently kind of finish your time there. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey and kind of where you started and what you brought back and what kind of was still the same for you? And I often tell people that the students were just like we were back in the 70s, except with more piercings and more tattoos. Yeah, yeah. The students are still just as engaged and just as creative and just as eager to think outside of the box as we were. So in some ways, going back was not much of a transition. I mean, other than, you know, I was older. Yeah, yeah. You know, and a lot of my, a lot of my teachers were still there at that time, like Shirley Kaplan and June Ekman and a, a lot of those, a lot of my mentors were still there. So the, the, the oddest part for me was when my mentors suddenly became my colleagues. That, that was yeah, yeah. a more, more peculiar part. But I felt really comfortable coming back and kind of excited because I, it was like a full-time job. <laughs> 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 Health benefits and all that stuff. And, but there's a, there's a pretty famous saying that you know, the, the politics in academia are so fierce because the stakes are so small. And uh, that's completely true. It's really hard to be part of an institute. And I think any institution. And in, and in fact, Sarah Lawrence, is a, I, I had it a lot easier than a lot of friends of mine who were at larger universities 
who have faculty meetings, you know, and service requirements and all these things that we don't at Sarah Lawrence. So in some ways I kind of lucked out. Um, the, fo yeah. the focus of the faculty is really intended to be teaching and not governance, but it, it, we still had to do enough governance that just made my eyes cross. And, um, and you're always dealing with colleagues who you don't agree with or who, uh, anyway, it all, the whole ball of wax ended up being really exhausting and kind of sadly eclipsed the whole reason that I wanted to be there, which was to be in the room with the students. Well, I'm glad you hung around as long as you did, because I know a lot of us that went to grad school went because you were there. Uh, Sarah Lawrence gets a lot of mentions already on this podcast for a number of reasons. A community in and of itself is kind of the progeny of the program. And I'm curious why puppetry kind of took its roots at Sarah Lawrence as well as it did, because I know you were there, but is, is there like other reasons why it kind of really flourished the way that it did and kind of spawned all of the, these artists that are in the community now? Yeah, I think that there's a couple of answers to that. One is, is that when I started the puppetry program at Sarah, I started the puppetry program before I became the director of the grad program. And then when I became the director of the grad program, I turned the puppetry program over to Lake. But I think that when we started it, the only other places in the country I knew of that had puppetry on a consistent basis were UConn, of course, where it's the only place you can get a degree in puppetry, and Cal Arts. And Sarah Lawrence, that was pretty much it. Gradually, most places would sort of open up and would offer like a puppetry course here or there. You know, maybe one semester you could get take a marionette class, but that was much, much later. Mm -hmm. So there was always this feeling in the early days that we were really pioneers. And I think that whenever you're a pioneer, that's always exciting because you don't know what's going to happen and you feel like you're forging new ground and it's exciting. Yeah. I think then it became popular, particularly among the graduate students for a while, more, more than for the undergrads. And I think it's because the undergrads, well, there's two things. Undergrads just, don't, don't forget, undergrads just got out of high school. <laughs> and having just starred in, you know, the musical Annie Get Your Gun. And they're sure that that is like, that is what theater is. And right. I always yeah. felt like my job as an educator was to disabuse them <laughs> of that idea. <laughs> And so, so a lot of undergrads won't go to puppetry because they're too invested in this other kind of theater. And I would only get the students that were already kind of questioning and were already ready to kind of move into something different. But graduate students are there. And, and as you know, the system at Sarah Lawrence is the graduates. It's a very heavily curricular program. You have to take nine to 12 courses a semester. <laughs> And so, you know, it's like, you know, they're looking through the catalog and it's like, sure, puppetry, why not? You know, I got to take something. Right, right. And it just ended up being, you know, the graduate students actually sort of gravitated towards puppetry. And I think it was because it was new to them. A lot of them, it was mm -hmm. new to them. And they were kind of shocked and amazed at how... Um, expressive it is and how cool it is and how and the things that you can do with it and how expansive you know a, a, me a medium it is yeah I think for me one of the first things that drew me to it was you were teaching it uh, but then we kind of immediately got put on you know Bunraku style three-person operated puppets and immediately touching a puppet and like going through the physical work with two other people as a team there was something about the physicality of it that I just kind of felt in my body like oh I know this I know what this is and it was 
endlessly fascinating to study biomechanics and how people actually run or sit or shift weight when they're already sitting and to try to translate that into a figurative character. There was just something about that that was endlessly fascinating. And then the other components that you would introduce are then puppetry is almost like total making in that we're all visual designers uh, as well and visual artists and sculptors even, or figuring out how to paint something or make a tiny room for the puppet to live in. And I think for me, it was one of the first times in my life that I felt like I was really an artist because I was again, an actor with the capital A before I came to Sarah Lawrence. And then the puppetry class really kind of opened this world of making to me that I had never really been a part of before. Yeah, you remind me, I, you know, Eric Wright was another student of mine because um, <laughs> I don't have any friends anymore. I just have fun. Students. <laughs> Eric, I asked him when he was a student, he was one of the, uh, the only people actually I know who like right from day one, he, he, he was like, I'm going to be a puppeteer, period. And I asked him, you know, why do you like puppetry so much? And he, and he said, I quote him all the time. It was such a lovely answer. He said, because I like making things with my hand, because I like theater and because I like science and with puppetry, I don't have to give any of that up. I love that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's certainly a lot of math involved in, uh, yeah, the science of you know, studying. Oh. oh my God, yeah. I yeah. mean, what, like the, the, the sort of the mechanics of how you make a mechanism and the physics, the physics of it all. Yeah, yeah. They're pretty intense. It can be, yeah, certainly it can be. One of the other things I really liked about learning kind of this stuff from you, Dan, was you have this approach to teaching uh, that you equated once to how your mother <laughs> taught you how to swim. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, she, we used to live on a lake and, and she taught us to swim by rowing us out into the middle of the lake and throwing us overboard. Then swim to shore. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, of course she was there. I mean, she didn't like, you know, plop us in the middle of the lake and then row away. <laughs> row away. <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't a monster. Somebody once, after a puppet class, came up to me at the end of the semester and said, you know, if you could give me a manual on how to build a puppet, it would just be so much better. And I said, well, first of all, there isn't one. And second of all, if there was, I wouldn't give it to you. Because I think you have to make your own mistakes. You have to do it. You can't, you can't just sort of, it's not like cooking where you, you know, you just, you add a half a cup of this and a, you know, there's no recipe. You, you have to, you have to fight your way through it. And then once, even when you get practiced at it, you know, I always say, you, you know, you, you make a puppet knowing that it's going to have to sit down and then you make the puppet as best you can. And you realize when it's there that it really it, that can't sit down very well. Um, but you like the puppet. So you have to uh, adjust the, you know, what the puppet's doing. Right. Right. And there's so much of that is when you're in the room with the puppeteers, they tell you, oh, it can only do this thing. And I'm well, uh, there's a, a great story about Tom Lee in the, I don't know if he told this story, but in the, when he was doing the- Oh, with the one at St. Anne's? Yeah, yeah. It, it was um, it was the story of a foot soldier. Oh, Hoplite. Hoplite, yeah, the Hoplite Diary. He had made all of these soldiers that were, they were very cute and they were very simple and, but, and he needed a ton of them. And he started playing with them and he didn't know what they did. And they couldn't do anything. They, they, like, they looked crappy fighting. They couldn't, fears, they couldn't. I mean, they just looked crappy doing it. The only thing they looked good doing was dying. So he just, the battle scenes were basically just these Hoplite puppets coming up out of the floor and just dying just over and over and over again. And it was 
really stunning. It was completely beautiful. But that's a perfect example of like, it's really useless for you to come in thinking you know what the puppet is going to do. It's not that way. That feels like a really nice transition to something that Lake mentioned and something I've heard you say before. And I've always appreciated this, Dan, because I find that it frees you up as an artist when you're making something. You're not afraid of, I don't know. You approach a process and sometimes you have no idea what it is when you enter it, but you have the kernel of an idea or an image or something that you're working with. And uh, Lake uh, recently told a story about you all being in a rehearsal process in Hiroshima Maiden and trying to solve a problem. And they turned to you and said, Dan, what do we do? And you said, I don't know. <laughs> and she said it made her feel so much better that she didn't have to like be a director as God with all the ideas that you could rely on the ensemble and wait and let it breathe. And I find that same idea just incredibly relieving as an artist. And I'm curious how that kind of entered your world or when you started having that relaxation, maybe. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Just because I'm accepting of I don't know doesn't mean I'm relaxed about it. <laughs> I mean, I think that it ent- that whole idea, actually, you can sort of blow it up a little bit or pull the camera back a little bit and think you, you don't ever want to do that in anything you do. You know, you ne- like if you knew the outcome, there's no point in doing it. You know, the, the, the art, yeah. being, art making is an investigative process. It's not a declarative process. It's not like, I think this and I'm going to make a piece about that. That's not what it's about. If you know the answers, then you don't need to make the piece. And, and if you do, it'll be crappy. It always has to start with maybe the kernel of an idea or, or a question. The, I mean, the piece that I'm working on now, it took me a long time to figure out what I think the piece is about. And even still, I'm not 100% sure. It's, it's quite, it's at the point where it could either be about one thing or it could be about another. I, you know, you don't know. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is that I realized that I got that from teaching because I mm-hmm. found that when I'm in the classroom, if a student asks me questions, I would much rather tell them, I don't know, but here's where you could go to look. Then it would be for me to bloviate and, and some crappy lesson out of it you know (laughs) it's much better to say oh god what a great question you know there's another saying which i love which is that good the best teachers teach what they don't know because then it's a shared journey you know then you're both invested in discovering what this is whatever it is i like the word bloviate (laughs) (laughs) you just used dan but those are such really wise and awesome things and of course like you don't some people i think go into teaching knowing that they want to be a teacher was this something that just kind of fell into your lap after a little while i know maybe it's out of necessity because it's new york so you try to find work where you can find work uh i'm just curious how you came to teaching i came to teaching when I was 12 years old. I started a children's theater in, the, in my hometown um, that ran for nine years when I was 12 years old. And I was the director. <laughs> and I directed, was, I mean, I've just been having all of these fun Facebook posts, people who were kids with me back then, and they were in this theater. It was called the Lobster Theater. And um, <laughs> they've been posting, the, our, first, <laughs> our first production was Hamlet. And, <laughs> you know, it was looking at these pictures, it's just such a hoot. It's so hilariously funny. But, you know, I always felt, even from then, that, that there was something about teaching. And so I continued to 
you know, study, uh, you know, I mean, I, I took a lot of psych, uh, developmental psychology courses in college and I did a lot of work in the, with children and I did, you know, a lot of outreachy kind of stuff with communities. So I always, I always did have teaching in, in my mind. The difference was that what I really wanted to be was I wanted to be an artist who sometimes teaches. But by the end of my career at Sarah Lawrence, I discovered that I was really just a teacher who sometimes makes art. And I don't want that. That's not the right balance for me. So I decided to say sayonara. Yeah. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll take a break here, Dan, and we'll come back in, uh, in just a minute with more Dan Herlin. Sarah Stabley. Joshua Rice. You are from Perry, New York. Is that correct? That is correct. Our hometown. Our hometown. And what is our hometown known for? Having 800 cows for every one person. More cows than people. That's right. But what else? Um, ooh, the Silver Lake Sea Serpent. That's true. We do have a sea serpent myth. But what else? Um, sometimes the air smells like cookies because we have a cookie factory in town. That's right. And then because of the cows, some days it smells like cow shit. But what else? Um, well, we have a lot of bars. And we have even more churches. Yes, people do love to drink and love Jesus at the same time. But Sarah, what else? Um, oh, we have a Carnegie Library. Oh my God, Sarah. No, it's the Silver Lake Brewing Project. Right, 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 right. SLBP. That's course, right, that's course. right. SLBP, which is our very own craft brewery here in Perry, New York, which just so happens to be the closest brewery to... Letchworth State Park, the Grand Canyon of the East. So if you decide to go for a hike and see some of the gorges or any of the amazing waterfalls, then after you see all of these things, hike on over to the Silver Lake Brewing Project where you can try any one of their rotating selection of 11 craft beers specializing in Belgian and classic American craft styles. Sarah, that's like witchcraft, but beer, beer craft. Which is better. It is better. No one's being burned alive at the stake when you go to the Silver Lake Brewing Project. Sarah, what kind of beer craft is really tantalizing your taste buds? Right now, uh, it's definitely the Saisons. They're incredible. I would say the same for any one of their sour beers. They also have incredible IPAs and a classic Western New York cream ale. And you can come and have these beers in the tap room, which is an incredible place to visit. That was once a horse stable, and before that, a silent movie house, Sarah. Think of it, Buster Keaton riding a horse. With beer. That's right. Who wouldn't want to watch that silent movie? But if you feel like maybe you want to stay more socially distant, these beers are also available for curbside pickup, or you can sit outside on their patio and enjoy the sunshine and sip a tasty craft beer. So Sarah, Perry, New York is famous and getting more famous by the glass. Because we have a podcast. Well, maybe one day, Sarah, a podcast about puppetry. That's right. We're going to make it big. We're going to put the town on the map with this podcast, Sarah. But the Silver Lake Brewing Project is already helping. Check them out at www.silverlakebrewingproject.com. So Dan, uh, I'm curious how, and, and this is a, a question I ask a lot of the guests that have come on, but how would you identify yourself when people ask what you do? You know, there's always that like awkward moment of like, oh, hi, I, I do this, or, or, you know, I'm a puppeteer, which sometimes I say, but not often. Uh, I'm curious how, in, in, depending on the contest, of course, these all are different too, but um, 
do you feel like you have a go-to in certain contexts or? No, I don't. I never say that I'm a puppeteer because I don't consider myself one. I don't, you know, I'm, I mean, I, I have puppeteered, but I don't, that's not my primary interest. So I don't, I don't think of myself as a puppeteer. What I think of myself, and this is a mouthful, I, Janie Geyser always said that she was a theater artist work, working in puppetry. Hmm. And that's the closest that I can come. I mean, sometimes, like for now, the construction guys that are helping me build the studio here, they're like, well, what kind of a studio? Oh, you're an artist. And I'm like, yep. Sure am. <laughs> and then, you know, later I'll maybe let it slip that I'm a puppet artist. And then, you know, you know the, it is amazing, though, that when you say to people that you're a puppet artist, you, you really have to think <laughs> whether or not you're going to disclose it because you get you get such a response, you know, it's such a, it's, it's still such a sort of rare bird yeah. that, you know, people are like, oh, I've never met puppet. You know, that people are suddenly very interested in puppetry or they think they are. But, and then, then you also have to go and, you know, explain to them that you don't do birthday parties and that you don't, you know, and that you've never been on Sesame Street. Um, right. You're not interested in that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, then they get a little like, they're they're a little confused, you know, but it's, but at any rate, it's an investment of your time to let people know that <laughs> what you do. I hundred percent agree. Yeah, I, it depends, I guess, on how, how much patience they have and how many details I'm willing to give about, say, you know, Bunraku style, oh yeah, puppetry yeah. or whatever it might be. Well, I can, you know sometimes I can't help myself if I let it slip that I'm a puppet artist. And and if they start to go on and on about, you know, I don't know, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood or, you know, hand puppets or something around it, I will, I just can't help myself. I'm like, well, that's not kind of what I do, you know, and then that opens up the whole door to Bunraku style and it's like, oh God, here we go. In toy theater, would you like me to tell you about toy tiny theater? <laughs> Um, well, Dan, I, I know the story, but I know there's probably a lot of other people maybe that haven't heard this, but can you tell folks, I guess, what initially got you into puppetry as a form or what inspired you in the first place? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to elaborate on this. Since you know the story, I'm going to elaborate on it a little bit. The, my, the first time I ever saw puppetry for uh, adults I, it was a concept that was completely new to me. I had no idea that such a thing existed was uh, I saw a uh, Janie Geyser piece and it just blew me out of the water. I just fell in love with it. And Janie and I had been introduced to one another through some mutual friends in Minneapolis. And, and then, you know, I hired her actually, I, did, I thought, oh, I can't possibly make a puppet as good as that. So I, when I needed a puppet in any of my performance pieces, I hired Janie to make them. But puppetry had always been sort of this interesting other thing after seeing Janie. Not before. Before it was like, no, I, I was like everybody else. It was like a, a kitty art form and I wasn't really interested in it. Uh, interestingly, I was also the director of an artistic, of a, the artistic director of a children's theater at the time. And I think I was doing that because I hated children's theater. And I think, I think you have to have a really healthy disregard for what you do. Otherwise, you're just, we're just going to be doomed to doing Annie, you know, for the rest of our <laughs> lives. So, you know, I was the artistic director of this children's theater. It was part of my teaching. And it was also, I, I didn't, you know, I just didn't approve of any children's theater that I saw. And I thought, well, I'm going to fix it. So doing that for, I think I did it for like 15 years or 16 years or something like that. And 
I began to be interested in playing with scale. So I would do these things where I would kind of bifurcate the action where there would be the characters who would have a conversation, but then, and, and the characters were sort of in a car, but then downstage, you would see a, a miniature car going across the stage. So I, I was sort of like trying to bifurcate the action. And I started playing around with scale a lot. So that was one stream. Then at the time, I was also a solo performance artist and I was doing these large scale um, pieces where I would play upwards of 60 characters in the evening. And like I did a solo adaptation of Nathaniel West's third novel, A Cool Million. And actually I did a duet uh, based on Hunchback of Notre Dame. I was doing all of these sort of reductive pieces where I was playing multiple characters and I began to discover that objects would were handy, you know, that I could indicate who was speaking by simply holding up a particular object. And if you were really good at it, you could discover that like, you know, that the object that was being held up could somehow be an interesting signifier. So it would be like, you know, the town drunk would be a beer stein, or in the case of a cool million, the former president of the United States was uh, represented by a, an American flag on a toothpick. And it would, it would save me from having to actually embody the, you know, it, it actually was a time saver and an energy saver. <laughs> And I start, and uh, somebody wrote a review of it and called it metonymics. Metonymics are, it's a linguistic term when there's an object that stands in for a person. So it's like when you say the crown, meaning, you know, the, the king or the royal family. So I thought, I thought I had invented this whole new kind of thing. I was very proud of myself. I thought I didn't. <laughs> I'm making these solo pieces and running this children's theater. And then I went to uh, the Museum of American Folk Art. And they had this gigantic exhibit of antique, and why? Because they're not American, but th this gigantic exhibit of antique toy theaters, paper theaters. And I, it was just this whole wall. It was, I, in my memory anyway, it was like 20 feet high. I'm sure it wasn't, but it was just in these glass cases, these miniature paper theaters. And I just was stunned. I mean, I, I thought, oh my God, this is my destiny. This is, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I, I just, I couldn't move. It was like I was struck by lightning. And at the time, I was working on a, um, an opera based on the, the guy who traveled across Iowa on a lawnmower, and I had a, uh, the farmer was played simultaneously by a 60-year-old baritone and a 20-year-old tenor, and then I played the state of Iowa. So I was working on that, and I went up to my studio, which at that time was in New Hampshire. And I just thought, I want to make a toy theater. And I just kind of, um, I put the opera on hold and I spent about a month and a half building a toy theater. And I had never built such a thing before. I never even considered myself, I mean, I had to teach myself carpentry skills, skill being a really <laughs> loose term. I mean, I just taught myself everything. I, I made the whole thing up. And it's always been that way. I never took a puppetry class. I just, I've always sort of figured it out and made it up. So I made this 12-minute um, piece called The Day the Ketchup Turned Blue. And uh, it's 12 minutes long. Only 12 people can see it at a time. It takes me, although it, it, it's 12 minutes long, but it takes me um, six and a half hours to set up when I unpack it. And I, and I was, it was based on the short story by a dear friend of mine who had died of AIDS and was, he had written this when he was eight years old. And so the piece actually just became a kind of elegy. Mm. Uh, and I, I was, I performed it all around in people's living rooms to raise money for AIDS research. 
And uh, I feel so lucky to be able to have seen you pull that out and, and set it up again because we had it as one of the many objects that um, you were gracious enough to let us display of your work uh, at the 2018 version of our puppet festival. I haven't, I, I hadn't, it's the first time I've un, unpacked it and set it up and I don't even know how long. I mean, I was, ama- I was actually amazed that there wasn't a lot of <laughs> mouse shit and rot in there. But <laughs> I can't say that it was in good working order because some, there had been some stuff that rusted and, and I have forgotten how to work it. But <laughs> I, went to, I went to China with it. I brought it to Taiwan, yeah, not China, Taiwan. And uh, I was really nervous about ESA opening it up. and. When I built it, the first thing I did was I went to like a Walmart or a Kmart or something. I bought one of those foot lockers like, that a, a kid would take to summer camp. And I just made the rule, if it doesn't fit, it doesn't go. Mm. So the whole thing breaks down and fits into this foot locker. And it's heavy as lead. But I was just so afraid that TSA would open it up and inspect it and pull things out. And then they would never, ever know how to repack it. So I made these really detailed instructions about how to repack it with a letter to the TSA agents saying, this is a puppet theater, but it is also my livelihood. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think they ever even opened it up. So I don't think anybody even saw that. But I, 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 fortunately, I managed to document not only how you unpack it and repack it, but also how you set it up. So when I did the Your Puppet Festival, I, you know, I did. I didn't have to rely on my very unreliable memory. I actually had a document there that I could look at. It, it would tell me, "Oh, this goes in here." Oh, right. I have. I don't know what it is about TSA agents or Border Patrol people in general, but I remember coming back from Japan with uh, Shanksmere, the show with Tom Lee, and uh, I was. I flew back to Toronto first, and then was coming back across the border in Buffalo. And when I got to the border, they asked me what my business was. And I was like, oh, well, I'm coming back from Japan. I was working on a puppet show. And they said, a puppet show. And I was like, what's in the back? And I was like, well, some of the puppets and, you know, this giant mushroom. And they're like, okay, pull over. <laughs> and like, I realized very quickly, like, the set piece that we referred to as the mushroom was not uh, the right thing to say to the Border Patrol agents. And then they <laughs> opened it up and saw, you know, these, like, dolls in my car. And they're like, oh, okay, you can go. And I was like, oh, yeah. thank you. Appreciate it very much. I know the TSA agent when I went to Taiwan, I they were very kind and they let me walk to the place where they sent it through the X-ray machine. So I watched it go through the X-ray machine, and they had all known that it was. They said, "What is in it?" And I said, "It's a puppet show." And it went through the X-ray machine, and one of the agents came up and said, "Up, they're fine." One of them waved at me, (laughs) making a little joke. Just uh, that moment to do their little comedy routine for us. Exactly. Well, Dan, can you talk a little bit about then Andy's Summer Playhouse? I know you mentioned like that first theater, the Lobster Theater, um, but then there was Andy's that you had just previously mentioned. Can you talk to us a little bit about one of the main reasons that you did do Andy's, which was, I think, to like bring all of your friends yeah. to your hometown <laughs> to like make work together and hang out? Kind of, yeah. I mean... I'm not sure that that was the reason that I did Andy's, but it was certainly, it was the reason that I got so many incredibly interesting people to come up there and work with children. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you live in the East village or you live in the city and you're making work, you, you're always making work and you see people only in the lobby of the theater. You know, you never really get a chance to hang out with your friends. And 
everybody's so busy and the, you know so i just i just had a feeling that if i asked you know pat alesco and kyle DeCamp and all of these people if i asked them to come up and just teach a one-week workshop in the country in the middle of hot summer that it would be a joy for them they do it for very little money and that turned out to be true <laughs> <laughs> not my motives are a little too visible there but it was i mean andy's was um incredibly formative for me and it was it was there that i kind of understood i, I and this is a terrible metaphor for obvious reasons but i discovered that children's theater and avant-garde theater are perfect bedfellows mm. um, they're really they're exactly the same thing it's about play and it's about experiencing something that you haven't experienced before. You know, you never go to a children's theater production and see a sofa play. <laughs> you know, the curtain, you know, goes up and there's a sofa there and I'm like, oh God, really? <laughs> I, I have one at home. Why, why do I need to pay money to see it here? So children's theater is really, it's, and it's new to them as well. So there's, it's, again, it's this, this idea about entering into some process from the point of view of, of a question rather mm -hmm. than a declaration mm -hmm. and it, it just so happened that you know at the time i was it was in the 80s and i was in the east village and there was this really exciting happening performance scene going on and i was in it and so i would get all of these incredibly cool people to come up and work with little kids and you know people like holly hughes and pat alesco and David Dorfman and oh God, I can't even, I mean, the list just goes on. Sometimes I don't even remember Janie Geyser and uh, Jenny Romaine. I mean, the list really goes on. And, and I would have all of these workshops that were not just theater that, you know, we had dance workshops and we had puppetry workshops and we had filmmaking workshops that were a hoot. And there was this one guy who was called the impact addict. He, he, <laughs> He sort of, he, he, he idolized, you know, Evil Knievel and was, you know, basically did these stunts. And one of the stunts he did was actually he threw himself off the PS-122 roof. And that was a, a big performance. And so I got him, you know, I thought kids would love this. So I got him to come up and work with little kids. So what, I, you know, what did they do? Do you remember like any of the projects they worked on? Yeah, they, yeah, I do. They made superheroes. Nice, nice. Yeah, that was that was what they did. <laughs> I, I don't know. There, there's there was so much packed into those 15 years I was running it. That, yeah, I mean, you know, when I took it over, it had an artistic staff of six, and by the time I left, I had an artif artistic staff of 37. Whoa! <laughs> it was it was really fantastic because it was also tuition free. Yeah. It was free for the kids. The only requirement was that their parents, they had to make or buy the costume in accordance with the costume designer's design. And that customer was Anna, who I still work with all the time. Mm -hmm. And they had to stock and man the refreshment table during intermission. And they had to drive their kids to and from rehearsals and performances, which was a major commitment because we right. worked every day. But it was, there was no tuition. So and we had three main stage shows plus two touring shows. And that's in addition to all of the workshops that we did. And just in those five performances, those five shows, we reached about 120 kids because each show, each, each one of the main stage shows had to have 30 kids in it. <laughs> oh my God. And the touring shows had 15. Wow. So, I mean, it was an enormous, and, and we auditioned twice as many. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. We also had a, we had a couple of different policies. We had a, what was called, we called it the must cast policy. <laughs> so 
And it was basically that if a kid auditioned one, and we never ever told anybody that this was happening, but if, if a kid auditioned one year and did not get a role, if they came back the next year and auditioned, we would automatically give them. So, it, you know, it was, it was pretty, it was a really fantastic place and really formative for the kids. And I'm in touch with a lot of old Andy's kids and they're all grownups and have children and grandchildren now. <laughs> are some of them, uh, those kids and grandchildren, are they still involved in Andy's in, in any way? Oh, yes. Um, in fact, I'm not the artistic director anymore, but the person who is the artistic director is a former Andy's kid. Oh, that's Actually, awesome. the, the two former artistic directors, I mean, this artistic director and the one immediately before him were both Andy's kids. And uh, there's an Andy's kid on the board. <laughs> that's so awesome, Dan. What a very cool legacy. It is. It's very, it's very, very sweet. It warms my heart just thinking about it. Amazing. Amazing. Well, um, let's take another quick break and then we'll be back with uh, a little more Dan Herlin. The Puppet Pod is produced in collaboration with Dixon Place, whose virtual programs are free and participating artists are remunerated. That's right. Artists getting paid to do what they do even during a pandemic. Donations help us bring together visionary artists and adventurous audiences and support the community during this challenging time. So if you like what you are listening to in the Puppet Pod, please consider making a gift to DixonPlace.org. Dixon Place's puppetry programs, including Puppet Block, Mine by Sheena Stripe, and New Money by Maria Camilla are made possible in part with generous support from the Jim Henson Foundation and donors like you. Thank you. This episode of the Puppet Pod is brought to you by Wear a Face Covering When You Go Out in Public! The Puppet Pod! Dan, one of the things that I've noticed about some of your work, and you would probably also say this too, is music plays like a really integral part in, in a lot of what you do. And for, again, people that don't really know puppetry so much, is we rely so little on the text, and really the visuals are doing a lot of the storytelling for us, but also for your pieces, it's the music. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about some of your collaborations with some of the musicians that you've worked with over the years. My theory on, on collaboration is, is that you pick the person who you think is going to do the best work and then just get out of their way. You know, I will always, I've worked with Dan Schreier a lot, but I've also worked with Guy Klusevich and, and Robert Ean. And in pretty much all of the cases, it's really like, you know, I show them what I'm doing or they see what they're doing. And then they go off into the corner and they work on creating some sort of um, musical or aural environment mm -hmm. for it. I, and I, you know, it's not, to, it's not to say that I just sort of dumbly accept anything that they make. I, you know, I have to, you know, I, I will give them my two cents worth and say, oh, this, this sounds a little too such and such, or I don't want to tell the audience what to feel. And I feel like this piece of music does, or that's really about it. You know, there's this thing called demo love. It's like in, if you, if you were an editor of a television commercial, you would use some piece of music that you think kind of has the same feeling that you're going for, but you have no intention of actually using that music. But then the more you work with it, the more you fall in love and now you can't imagine yeah. anything else. Um, and in dance, what a lot of choreographers will do is they will purposely do material, the same material. And every time they run it, they'll do it to a completely different piece of music because they want to avoid the idea of demo love. 
and because demo love is also a, a you know a real thing i never ever tell the composer what we're rehearsing to <laughs> i i really do not want them influenced right. they don't want to know either they're like oh, i don't i don't want to know <laughs> but yeah you're right i do again it goes back to the idea that i have which is that puppetry i think is really really closely related to dance and you know, and they're both physical art forms and their art media. Mo the, the main communicative factor in both is, is movement. Um, and so like in dance, uh, very often the, the silence is filled with something that will provide something else, something other than narrative or something other, something that the movement can't do, which is another thing, you know, you can't, you don't, you don't want your music to be redundant. You don't want it to be doing the same thing that you're doing. It's much more interesting to see a tragic scene set to carny music <laughs> than it is to watch that same tragic scene set to tragic music. You know, it's like too, it's not it's redundant. You don't you don't need to do it. And in, in in the dance world, they call it Mickey Mouse. Oh, Mickey Mousing, right? I think you've also described it to us uh, in grad school as "Don't apple apple the audience." <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. It, and that's from Brian Selznick, who had a, a a a professor come in to his illustration class and he did he did two things he said he wrote he wrote on the board the word apple and then he drew a picture of an apple and the, the teacher pointed to one and said you may do this and pointed to the other and said or you may do this and then pointed to both of them and said but you may not do this <laughs> don't want to do both you don't want to do both it makes perfect sense it makes perfect sense it's giving audience the benefit of the doubt and especially in puppetry too like we put so much we give the audience so much space to put what they bring onto puppets or the show or what they're trying to express yeah it's much more interesting if you know if you, i mean if you're going to deal with text it's much more interesting to see the puppet frolicking in the woods and having the text be things were going terribly Things will, you know what I mean? That's more right, right. the disjunctions that are interesting. And I was actually talking to a grad student recently about how people think that, you know, having flow is something that you are trying to strive for in theater, that this scene flows into the next and that it flows. And I'm like, totally not. Flow is something to be avoided at all costs. You want disruption, you want interruption. Those are the things that are interesting. So. You, you want the, all of those things that make good tension. You don't want, mm -hmm. like, if, you know, if, if the scene is like sad and there's sad music and it flows into the next sad scene, you're just, your audience is going to be asleep. Yeah, 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 exactly. Sarah was asking me about this during the break and uh, she was also curious to, to ask you about what you've noticed in puppetry and kind of how, from your start to now, what what's changed? What have you seen in, in the puppetry the field that has changed? Yeah, Sarah, is that about right? Yeah, just because um, you have been in the the puppetry field for so long, and for me, like, not so long. You're you're, you're... <laughs> so long. <laughs> and, well, and it's funny because like like we were kind of touching on earlier in like the first segment about how like when you when you talk about puppetry, people are like Sesame Street or you know at least Jim Henson and kind of going on to that and just wondering how that progression has changed for you since uh, you started your career into now. Well, I do think that with the advent of the Lion King and Avenue Q, that there is a more kind of general population awareness that puppetry 
you know, there, there's, there's the, the chance that puppetry could be more than just Sesame Street. I don't think that the, the public at large fully understands what that means yet, but at least there's a bit of a crack in the armor. So I think that's something. Like you don't like, uh, I think back in the day, if I was to, I, I think, and Janie, I know had this experience that, you know, you say to somebody that, you know, you go to a presenter and you say, I want to do a puppet show here, and they would just laugh you out the door. And I, that doesn't happen anymore. So that's changed. I, but I think the, the biggest change is simply the numbers of people who are doing it. Because really, honestly, back, back in the day when I started doing it, it was, it really, you know, I could count all the puppet artists on one hand in New York City. There are really very few people. It was, you know, Roman Pasca, Janie Geyser, Paul Zaloom, Theodore Skipateris, me, that's it. <laughs> I mean, in New York, you know, I mean, there, there, were, there, were, uh, there were people across the country who were doing it also, and certainly people in other countries who were doing it. But it was really uh, not a very populated community, very well populated. And then came the Henson Festivals. And that's when really audiences and artists began to see that there were possibilities for the, for the form um, that they had never imagined. It's amazing to be able to see that progression too. And even in the style of your work, Dan, I feel like it's changed from a lot of the handmade stuff in some of your early work to demolishing, for example, where you kind of embraced a new technology and 3D printing. Um, so I'm curious a little bit about that trajectory for you as well. Well, I, you know, I'm still a Luddite at heart. You know, I, I am not comfortable with, a, with masses of technology. So the fact that I'm actually using a 3D printer is sort of amazing. Of course, I'm not really using any professional software. I'm, I'm still using this thing called Tinkercad, which is extremely <laughs> limited, but it's about as, it's about as, complex as my poor little brain can wrap around. But I will say that 3D printing, the puppet pieces has changed everything for me because now I'm no longer stuck at the table gluing minuscule pieces of paper onto the plasticine form. I can actually just push a button and the machine will crank out the puppet head and I can go off and do something else. I can go off and be working on their legs, you know? So I'm, I, I have the capability of getting twice as much done, especially if, like I do, if you like to play with scale, a 3D printer will allow you to have the exact same puppet in multiple sizes. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's such an advantage to being able to just press that button and let it go. Oh my God. No, and this is like, I, I wish I had a 3D printer when I was doing Disarmor, but no. Right. I, with Disfarmer, you know, there were just like six puppets of the same guy shrinking. Uh, but I had to make each one by hand. I had to do, each, I was so nervous because they, to me, those puppets look nothing alike. <laughs> I just see them as like complete, what? People really, they're so gullible. That <laughs> but, but, you know, that, that problem would have been solved if I'd had a 3D printer back then. Well, that kind of brings me to this thing that we do on, on this podcast. We ask puppeteers why they think puppetry is hard, but it's certainly something that we've heard in a lot of rehearsals with you, Dan, is <laughs> puppetry is hard in moments that we're trying to figure something out and for all the million reasons that puppetry is hard. But at one point, I think I heard you say uh, 
puppetry is puppetry is hard and don't do it. It's a giant waste of time. <laughs> no, I that. no, what I no, I never said that. What I <laughs> opposite. I I what I love about puppetry is that it's it's completely financially inviable. <laughs> <laughs> and what that means is that means that nobody is in it for the wrong reason. Like yeah. nobody's in it. You're gonna make a 12-minute puppet show that only 12 people can see at a time. There's not a chance in hell you could even make any money. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> As we are all learning in the field. But uh, you do it because it's there's something else about it. And I know for me, certainly, there's like this total making quality, this like really feeling all of your artistic parts of you getting exercised, which is also really freeing and exciting. And there's a lot of problem solving. There's so much problem solving that's always going on too. And I think that's a really exciting thing for for artists. Well, Dan, before we let you go, uh, we've been working on this thing where we just ask a series of rapid fire questions. Mm -hmm. um, we call it the, the puppet hot pot. And uh, the name is still, we're working on the name a little bit, but uh, Sarah loves it. I don't, uh, I don't. And we... <laughs> I'm just going to ask you a, a quick series of rapid fire questions and um, yeah, just whatever is kind of your, your first answer. Great. So here we go. What was your favorite thing about growing up in New Hampshire? None of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I was always such a little outsider and I was this little, you know, gay boy who was like, uh, I mean, I think I said this often. Um, my classmates were worried about which was better, Ford or Chevy, and I was worried about which was better, Monet or Renoir. I mean, it's not <laughs> the truth. So, and there I was in this hard scrabble little place in New Hampshire where, anyway, so uh, very, there's none of it was my favorite growing up. Now I love the place, but then I couldn't, I couldn't get out of there fast enough. Fair enough. What do you look for uh, when you want to work with a puppeteer specifically, someone to kind of work in one of your pieces? Danny Geiser said that, uh, you know, the, the, <laughs> the, the way she casts something is just ask herself, who do I want to be in a room with? And I think that that's true, especially if you have an eye towards touring. You don't want to be on the road with someone you don't like. They could be the best puppeteer in the world. And you're like, oh, no way. So you, you want to surround yourself with people that you like and people who are curious and people who, you know, that's it. What is one of your most memorable places in the world that your work has taken you? Well, you were there. <laughs> uh, Amsterdam. Yeah. yeah. I, and I tell this story often, actually, that you and I were sort of the first ones there because our job was to open up the touring crates to make sure that nothing got smashed. And then we would have an extra day to repair any, you know, make any repairs that needed to happen on any of the objects. And, and I was so nervous about that, Dan, because you also hired me and our friend Vinny to build those touring crates, which, you know, when you asked us to, I was like, sure, I've done that before. I had never done that before. And I knew part of like building these things was you hate touring. And this is like part of that process. So we were like, oh, well, if we can do this and figure it out, then Dan will like say yes more easily. So like, of course, we can build these things. And we got there and I was like, oh, God, these things are going to be so fucked. They're going to be so fucked. They're going to be so fucked. Yeah. And they weren't. <laughs> it was so nice. They were perfectly fine. And in fact, when you and I got to Amsterdam and opened them up, we unpacked everything and we looked at it. And there was, I think there was one stupid thing that just needed a little dab of hot glue. Yeah, right. And we were just like, 
okay, well, we're here a day early. Let's go grab a beer. And we went out and we sat, we found a little cafe on a canal and sat and had a beer. And both of us looked at each other. And I, I don't know if it was you that said it or me that said it, but one of us said, everything is just better here. It really is. It really is. It's such an incredible country and city. The people are happy. They're like, they have health care. <laughs> Everything is better there. Yeah, yeah. 100%. I mean, they could, they could also be stoned out of their gourd, but. Uh, that, that certainly helps a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Amsterdam is an incredible, incredible city. Uh, of all of the pieces that you made, do you have like one that's maybe like the most special to you? Oh, good Lord. You're asking me to be like Sophie's choice here. <laughs> um, no, I have, I, have, I have one that I think it was not successful. And, I, and in almost all of the other ones, in most of all of the other, no, and in fact, in all of the other ones, there are parts of them that were not successful. But I don't, I can't. I don't think I don't think I'm more attached to one than another. I, I do. I think that some of them have been more eye-opening to do. I think I learned more from this farmer than any other piece I made, but that doesn't mean it was my favorite. Gotcha. What's the strangest thing about living in a former church? The strangest thing? Yeah, I, Dan. For people that don't know, Dan. Uh, converted an old church into a, this beautiful home for many years. And uh, there's so many stories that you've told us about living there. And I'm curious if there's like one of the, one of the odd things you could share. <laughs> there, there was a car full of nuns that would stop by every year just to see the place. <laughs> and we became sort of chummy. Um, <laughs> and then... There were, there were also, it just stops towards the end, but at the beginning, there, were a, a, there was a steady stream of elderly couples who showed up at the door, and they had wanted to see the church because that's where they had married. Mm, that's nice. Yeah, those are, oh, and then, of course, then there's the, the story of the, the bathroom, I mean, the kitchen sink. And what, <laughs> so we turned the sacristy into the kitchen, and the sacristy will have a sink in it because the, the, the priest has to, you know, take the leftover blood of Christ and get rid of it somehow. Instead of drinking it, he pours it down the drain. And um, so we turned it into a tank and it started, uh, um, you know, we, we, it was fine for a year, two years. And then it started backing up kind of regularly. And the woman that we had taking care of the church when we weren't there said, oh, well, well, you know, you know about that sink, right? <laughs> like, no. And she said, well, it just drains into the ground because it can't go into the septic system because you, the blood of Christ is the blood of Christ and it can't go mixing with human feces. <laughs> it has to go back into the earth. So we dug, out, we, we followed the pipe and we dug and sure enough, there was just this little pipe that just went boop out <laughs> and just ended and we find these sort of sad little crushed egg cell shells in the ground and the rest of it in the kitchen way. So we had to, <laughs> you know, for a year and a half, we were just, our, our, our gray rotter was just going into the ground. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, Dan, I have one final question for you. And I know this is a, a dirty secret that you don't often like people to know about. But when we, um, 
I was working on a residency at the Celebration Barn in Maine, and we saw a picture of a, a certain person uh, on the wall there. And I'm curious what you were studying when you were there at the Celebration Barn. Movement <laughs> <laughs> um, theater. That's right, movement theater. That's exactly right. Uh, uh, thank you so much for that beautiful middle finger that <laughs> no one out of podcast land will have seen. But um, Dan, it's such a delight to talk to you in this way. And uh, I know there are a lot of other people out there that will be excited to hear this. So thanks for your time today. And thanks for introducing me to this world. You know, like you said, like I had no idea puppetry for adults was a thing until I went to Sarah Lawrence and you showed me that world. And I'll, I'll never forget that. I did a show with you just before you went to Rome when you had your year sabbatical and your Rome Prize residency. And before you left, you said, hey, you know, I, I appreciate all the work that you've done on the show and I'm working on this new piece. And, you know, if uh, I ever need a puppeteer, uh, I'll, I'll let you know. And sure enough, you came back and you did. And working on Demolishing was one of the, the most fun and hard <laughs> processes I've ever been a part of. And I always appreciated that you too saw that and appreciated it because you would watch us in the audience, but then you would always make a point to come back and watch the show backstage so you could see what we were doing in order to make the show come to life and watch this choreography happen. And uh, it's such an incredible, incredible fond memory for me. So I appreciate it so much. Too. Well, it's a fond memory for me too. And I only, I, my only regret is that it didn't have a longer touring life. Well, gosh, one day, uh, Tom Lee and Chris Carcioni and I were kind of daydreaming when we were in Paris in December before the world exploded. And we were like, oh, well, maybe maybe we can like be dance producers and we can like figure out a way that we can start to reach out to people and, you know, see if we could get Demolishing booked and Disfarmer booked and maybe Hiroshima Maiden brought out and we could get that booked again. Um, so if you're ever interested, Dan, there's a, a conglomerate that's kind of plotting in the shadows. Count me among your first clients. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Dan, thank you so much, and uh, I hope you have a great uh, rest of your day. Thanks. You too. This has been a blast. Thanks. The Puppet Pod, hosted by Josh Rice and me, Sarah Stabley. Produced and engineered by also me, Sarah Stabley. Theme song and incidental music by Seth Fargolzia and additional music by Hazar and Scott Holmes. Executive produced by Dixon Place and the New York State Puppet Festival, a program of Shake on the Lake and Josh Rice Projects. Support is provided by Dixon Place, the Jim Henson Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Arts Council for Wyoming County Community Arts Grant. This decentralization program is made possible in part with funds from the New York State Council on the Arts, with the support of Governor Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature, administered in Wyoming County by the Arts Council for Wyoming County. To make donations, please visit shakeonthelake.org or dixonplace.org. For more information about the artists featured on our podcast, please visit www.thepuppetpod.com. Oh,